Good morning, Snowden Church Baptist. Snowden Baptist Church, I should say. It is good to be with God's family again at worship, is it not? Uh, let's uh, pause once again for prayer and approach the throne of our Father. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you as a dependent people this morning. We, Lord, are dependent on you, first of all, to bring us into this world physically. We are dependent on you for food and for an income. We are dependent on you, Lord, most importantly, for the forgiveness that you have provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are dependent on you for sound mind. And we are dependent on you, Lord, for heaven after we die. Lord, we are dependent people. And this morning I'm praying that you as our Father would come and spoon feed us by your word. Give us sustenance and nourishment by the words of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, transform our minds and hearts in this hour is my prayer. And we pray that you would be richly present with us and that you would uh, change our minds, perhaps, if they need changing. Uh, Still our hearts if they need to be stilled. Encourage us and bring us further down the path of righteousness for your namesake is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 12 or 13... My mom used to worry about me because I got into the habit, for a season at least, of leaving the house for school with only a chocolate pudding in my stomach. I just, at that age, refused to eat real food in the mornings. I think looking back, I was probably nervous about school, nervous about friendships, while at the same time, I was experiencing all the adolescent hormonal changes that you do when you're that age. But whatever the case was, despite my mom's best efforts to feed me proper food, all I could do was to gobble down this chocolate pudding and then run out the door at 8 o'clock to go to school. And of course, by uh, about 8.30, I felt this pit in my stomach, uh, this hunger became very much all-consuming and distracting up until noon when I could go and pull a sandwich out of my lunch bag. Well, friends, to this day, to this day, I'm 48 years old, and when I get hungry, my mind connects the feeling of hunger with that earlier chocolate pudding time in my life. When I was about 20 years old, I parked my car one day in the parking lot at Mayette Hot Springs in Jasper, Alberta, and I proceeded to hike up Sulphur Mountain. It was probably the first time that I had hiked up a mountain. And naively and stupidly, I had forgotten to bring enough water. Uh, I think I only had about half a bottle full of water, which wasn't nearly enough because with the Sulphur Mountain hike, you gain about 2,300 feet in elevation by the time you reach the summit, so water is a good idea. About an hour into the hike, 
Of course, the little bit of water that I brought along was pretty much gone. But thinking I was a he-man, I kept going. Uh, the summit was the goal now, you see, so up, up, up. And I became enormously thirsty. But with sheer determination and with lots of breaks, a couple hours later, I finally made it up to the top. And on that beautiful mountain top with a great view, I vowed to myself to never be that stupid ever again. Well, friends, I share those two little vignettes from my life because they are stories that came to my mind this past week as I was considering what Jesus says in the next verse of his sermon in Matthew 5-6. In that verse, he talks about hungering and thirsting. And I was reflecting on the question, when were times that I was particularly hungry and thirsty in earlier life, and what did it feel like to be hungry and thirsty? Now, as a person who grew up in Canada, admittedly, I've never known real hunger and real thirst. This week, I had to stretch my memory to think of those times in my life when I experienced hunger and thirst. See, in my lifetime in Canada, food has always been abundant, and water has always come out of every tap. But for the person who was on the mountain that day, in the first century, listening to Jesus as Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, for the person who had lived in the ancient Near East during the time of Jesus Christ and before, hunger and thirst would be something that they would identify with much more than I do. All we have to do is consider briefly the many experiences of hunger and thirst that are recorded in the Bible. The experience of hunger and thirst was something much more common and real for these ancient Near Eastern people than it is for us in the West. So as examples, we recall that in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had to do what? He had to pull up stakes and go to Egypt to find food because of a severe famine. Hunger. In Isaac's time, Genesis 26, he too lived through a famine. During the time of Joseph, there was a seven-year famine. In the time of Moses and the people coming out of Egypt, they hungered and thirsted dramatically as they traveled through the wilderness thinking they might die. And there had also been a three-year famine in the time of David, 2 Samuel 21, and famines also during the time of Elijah and Elisha. In fact... During Elisha's lifetime, there was a famine in Samaria that was so severe that according to 2 Kings 6, donkeys' heads and the dung of doves 
were being sold at outrageous prices, and women began to cannibalize their sons. The point we're trying to establish here is that the people in this part of the world knew better than most of us do what real hunger and thirst were all about. And so when they heard Jesus mention hunger and thirst in this beatitude in in Matthew 5, 6, they would instantly resonate with that imagery more than we do. But we want to do our best this morning, don't we? As those who live in plenteous Canada in 2018, we want to do our best to deepen in to the words of Jesus here to understand what it is that Jesus is getting at in this beatitude. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and I hope you have a Bible open. He says in Matthew 5, 6, Makarios. Flourishing. Now, about three weeks ago, we made the argument that the English word flourishing is probably a more accurate translation of the Greek word makarios here. More accurate than the traditional translation of blessed. And we went through some of the reasons for that conclusion in the sermon three weeks ago, but just to summarize briefly... And some of you, if you want to go to sleep for the next 20 or 30 seconds, you could do that. But just to summarize briefly, because of how the Greco-Roman culture in the first century was using this Greek word makarios during the time of Jesus, and also because of the way this Greek word was employed in the very influential Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, called the Septuagint, which is the Bible that the apostles had before them as they wrote their epistles. Because of all of that, the English word flourishing seems a more accurate and better translation. It's not perfect, but it's more accurate and better than the word blessed. Now, I should point out there is another Greek word in the New Testament that translates normally as bless or blessing in places like Luke 6.28 and Acts 3.26, Romans 12.14, etc. And that is the Greek word eulageo, eulageo. But that's not the word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes of Matthew. The word that begins each Beatitude is the word makarios, And following Jonathan Pennington, who is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Seminary, where I did my doctoral studies, my conclusion is that this word is better translated here as something like flourishing, thriving. So, you can wake up now. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. He tells us here that people who hunger and thirst after righteousness are people who flourish who thrive. 
Now, friends, note very carefully here what Jesus says. Okay? He does not say merely that people who want righteousness are flourishing. Want is a fairly weak word. I want a new car. I want my kids to do well. I want a day off. What Jesus says here in this beatitude is much stronger than want. And I hope that you note this well. Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. What is it to hunger and thirst? Now, some of you may have been way more hungry and thirsty in your lifetime than I was in those two little stories that I shared off the top. To be really hungry and really thirsty is to be uncomfortable to the point of pain. The truly hungry and thirsty person is a person who is desperate who has an all-consuming sense of their lack, of their need. To be truly hungry and or thirsty is to be constantly distracted until the hunger or thirst is sated or satisfied. Hunger and thirst are not passing feelings. They stay and they get stronger until food and water present themselves. To be really hungry and thirsty is to be restless and to be preoccupied. To be hungry and thirsty is to yearn, to long, to desire. Jesus in this beatitude is commending a certain kind of hunger and thirst. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst. Flourishing are those who are desperate and who agonize over their lack and who who have an all-consuming desire for what? For what? Now, let's be very careful here, friends. Be very careful to listen hard to Jesus here. There are so many avenues for human hunger and thirst. So many of us hunger and thirst for happiness. Above all, if we could just find happiness, we agonize over our search for Happiness. We lack happiness and we hunger and thirst over it. Others of us hunger and thirst for spiritual experiences. We feel like we need the next spiritual high to keep going, and if we don't get it, we get anxious. Still others of us may be controlled by a hunger and thirst for control in our lives, or for power, or we hunger and thirst after health, because at the end of the day, we are afraid to die. 
Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus, the one whom Colossians says created you and created the earth that you have your feet on right now, Jesus says here to you and to me that the way to flourishing is to be people who hunger and thirst not after experiences or power or money or health or control or happiness, but after righteousness. Friend, what is it actually that you are hungering and thirsting after in your life? What are you distracted by until you can find it and have it? What is it precisely that's causing you discomfort until you can get it? What is the number one thing that you yearn for, ask yourself that question, that consumes you? Ask yourself, is it righteousness Or is it something else? And trust me, as I've prepared this sermon, I didn't leave myself out of that. I've been asking myself this question all week. Jesus says to us, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These words of Jesus are informed by his Hebrew Bible, by the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament, which was the Bible that was current in the time of Jesus, that Jesus knew and that he read. When we hear Jesus talking about hungering and thirsting after righteousness here in Matthew 5-6, we can hear traces, can't we, of Old Testament texts like Psalm 42, verse 2, where the psalmist talks about thirsting after God. Or Psalm 63.1, where the psalmist says that his soul thirsts for God and his flesh faints for God. Or Psalm 143, verses 6 and 7, my soul thirsts for you, God, like a parched land. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the righteousness here in this verse that is the meal that the flourishing hunger and thirst after. How do we define righteousness in the context of Matthew 5-6? What is Jesus after here? Is Jesus talking, listen, is he talking in this verse about the righteousness that the Apostle Paul describes so wonderfully in his letters, namely, the righteousness that God declares over us. Is Jesus inviting us here to hunger and thirst after the righteousness that, God's, that God imputes to us, to use the $50 theological term? Or does righteousness in Matthew 5-6 carry a slightly different flavor? I think it does carry a different flavor in this verse and a huge clue to the meaning of righteousness in Matthew 5-6 comes just four verses later in Matthew 5-10 where Jesus says, listen carefully to what he says there, 
Flourishing, we'll get to this beatitude in a few weeks. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, if we can paraphrase, flourishing are those who are persecuted because of their behavior and actions that conform to God's will. To quote Don Carson, righteousness in Matthew 5-6 carries the primary sense of a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Another way to put it is as Charles Quarles has put it, and this is to say that the righteousness in our verse has to do with an earnest personal aspiration for holiness. An earnest personal aspiration for holiness. Flourishing are those people who hunger and thirst, who earnestly aspire after holiness. These are people who genuinely desire to walk holy, to act in accordance with God's standards, to obey God and to be faithful to God and trust God. These are folk who long to be free of sin, to be free of the fallen self, and they long to display the fruit of the Spirit before people, and before God. And they long for this to happen in the world around them. I'm helped here again by Don Carson, who says, the person described in Matthew 5-6 is, quote, not drifting aimlessly in a sea of empty religiosity. Still less is he puttering about, distracted by inconsequential trivia. His delight is the word of God. For where else is God's will to which he hungers to be conformed so clearly set forth? This person doesn't have a dusty Bible. Carson says he wants to be righteous, and this is key, he wants to be righteous not simply because he fears God, but because righteousness has become for him the most eminently desirable thing in the world. Flourishing, thriving, are those who are restless and preoccupied, all consumed with a sense of their lack of personal holiness, their lack of conformity to God's will. Flourishing are those who have a preoccupying craving to walk in faithful obedience to God and to walk before others in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In essence, friends, flourishing are those who are sick that they're not more like Jesus. Ask yourself right now, am I heart sick that I'm not more like Jesus Christ? Or am I so numbed out that I find myself shrugging my spiritual shoulders at Jesus 
shrugging my spiritual shoulders at his words here in this beatitude. Has the world and all its stuff dulled my appetite for righteousness? The greatest English-speaking preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, looked at Matthew 5, 6, and he said, If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. righteousness. And then the last part, because they shall be satisfied. Because they shall be satisfied. Why is it that those who hunger and thirst after conformity to God's will are flourishing? It's because they shall be Satisfied. Their hunger and thirst for righteousness gets satisfied, and hence they flourish. Now, friends, I want you to see this. This is a supremely astounding gospel statement here at the end of this beatitude because they shall be satisfied. Let's divide this a little. Now, first of all, I know it's Sunday, but we need to engage in just a very brief grammar reminder concerning verbs. Okay, you're with me? Concerning action words. If I say, I punch my opponent, then the verb punch is active. I am the one doing the punching. But if I say, I am punched, then the verb is passive. Someone else is doing the action of punching on me. Here at the end of Matthew 5, 6, we have a passive verb. Someone is doing an action to someone else. The people in question here, listen, The people in question here are not bringing satisfaction to themselves. They are being satisfied by someone else. They will be satisfied. In technical lingo, this is what we call a divine passive. And the meaning is God is the one doing the satisfying for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. God is doing the filling for the hungry and thirsty. And the question is, with what, with what does God satisfy the hungry and thirsty exactly? And the answer is, he satisfies them or he fills them with what they craved after, and that's righteousness conformity to God's will. 
Now, do you see the gospelness of what Jesus is saying here? What Jesus tells us is that the hungry and thirsty themselves do not, listen carefully, the hungry and thirsty themselves do not, they cannot achieve the righteousness that they yearn after. It's God who gifts them with righteousness. It's God who sates them, who fills them, provides for them, gifts them with the righteousness, with the very obedience and faithfulness that they desire. And this, friends, this right here in Matthew 5, 6, if you like highlighting your Bible or circling things, this would be a good verse to circle and highlight. This may be the major interpretive key to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Charles Quarles has observed this. He points out that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes, doesn't he, he makes these radical, nearly impossible demands of people. Demands to walk in high-level righteousness. But here in 5.6, what Jesus is telling us is that the very righteousness he demands in the sermon is a divine gift. Are you with me? It is something that is brought, that is wrought in the heart of the disciple. It's a righteousness that is simply not achievable by any person operating in their own power. God does it. Psalm 107.9. Does the longing soul satisfy itself? Does the hungry soul fill itself? No. God says there that he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. <laughs> Listen. Say you invite friends over for supper. You spend part of the day cooking up a nice meal. You clean the house a little. You light some candles. And then your friends arrive. You say to them, I hope you brought an appetite. And then you sit down to eat. And as a good host, you take pleasure in seeing them enjoy the food that you cooked. You want them to enjoy it. What you would never think of doing in that moment is sitting your guests down and saying to them, I need $40 from each of you to cover the cost of this meal. <clears throat> Wouldn't that be highly inappropriate? Your guests would never, ever come back. <laughs> but the point is, you didn't want them to bring money to your meal. You just wanted them to bring an appetite and enjoy what you give. Now switch the picture. You are the guest coming through the door to the table that's set. And God is the host. You're in God's house. What does God want of you in that moment? Friend, he just wants you to bring your appetite and to enjoy the lavish feast that he sets before you. He wants you 
to enjoy what he gives. And what he gives to the hungry and thirsty in Matthew 5-6 is the righteousness that you don't have. He just wants you to bring an appetite. That's all. To hunger and thirst for the righteousness that he gives. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. The only price God demands at his table is an appetite for what he wants to provide. Isaiah 55.1, God says, Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money... Come, buy. You don't have any money. Come, buy. With no money. (laughs) Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Just bring an appetite. God doesn't sit you down at his table and say, uh, look, before you take the righteousness that's on the table, I need a higher level of goodness from you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, before you take the righteousness that I'm giving, I'll need another three or four weeks of penance from you. He doesn't say that. God just says, are you hungry? Good. Then dig in. Pig out on the righteousness that I am gifting you with. And there is no disadvantage calorically. You can eat as much as you want. This week I was delighting myself as I was reading the 16th and 17th century Anglican Richard Sibbs. Sibbs wrote this little book called Love to Christ. Love to Christ. And on page 57 of my copy I found these words. Sibbs wrote, God counts it an honor since he hath made such rich provision for us to take part and for our part to show our unwillingness that such free kindness should be refused. We cannot honor his bounty more than to feed liberally of that he liberally sets before us. I want to read that sentence again. We cannot honor his bounty more than to feed liberally of that he liberally sets before us. And then Sib says, We are glad to perceive our friends upon invitation to think themselves welcome. Let us open our mouth wide since Christ is so ready to fill it. (laughs) Just come with an appetite for righteousness. And you shall be filled. You shall be satisfied. Satisfied by God himself with the righteousness that you hunger and thirst for. And in being satisfied by God with what you don't have in and of yourself... You flourish. Now before we wrap this sermon, we're going to wrap it in order to continue our feast on Christ at the communion table. But first I want to draw our attention to one final, I think, important aspect of our verse of Matthew 5, 6. 
Have you noticed that you can eat a big, delicious meal and feel content afterward, but then hours later, you begin to feel hungry again, right? Your stomach rumbles. You're even willing to do dishes again. You have to eat again. This is a basic fact of human life. We eat, and then we get hungry, and so we eat again, we get hungry again, and on and on goes the cycle every single day of our lives. I think that basic pattern is assumed in Jesus' Makarios statement in Matthew 5.6. God gifts us with a satisfaction of the righteousness we desire, but then we get hungry again. Or maybe we could say that the more God fills us and satisfies us, the more hungry we get for what he gives. The satisfying of the hunger and thirst that God brings is so satisfying that we then hunger and thirst for more of it. There is this perpetual hungering and thirsting that happens in the disciple of Jesus Christ. God satisfies the hunger. Yes, he does. But we hunger for more. It's like the Apostle Paul, that great, radically transformed missionary and theologian of the early church. As much of a beacon as Paul was for Jesus Christ, he could say in Philippians 3.10 that his desire even as a seasoned, mature believer in Christ, his desire was what? To know Christ. What? You're a seasoned, mature believer, Paul. Yes. My desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in Christ's sufferings, to be like Christ in his death. That's Paul talking. God had satisfied Paul with righteousness, to be sure, but Paul yearned for more, even though he walked with God for years. The more God gifted to Paul, the more Paul desired. So wonderful was the gifting, the feeding, the satisfaction. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they shall be Satisfied. Well, as we close, I want to address very quickly two groups of people who are listening. The first group are those who remain dead in trespasses and sins. Those who have never been born again by the Spirit of God. Those who aren't believers in Jesus. Followers of Jesus. Now, friend, if you walk up to the cemetery on Mount Royal, I defy you to find a single person lying on the other side of the grass who is hungry or thirsty. Dead people don't hunger and they don't thirst. To be hungry and thirsty is to be alive. You will not hunger and thirst in the way that Jesus commends in Matthew 5, 6 if you remain dead 
in trespasses and sins. Outside of Jesus Christ. It's not possible to hunger and thirst after righteousness if you aren't alive by the Spirit. You must be born again, to quote Jesus in John 3.7. Born again, and as a new babe, freshly birthed in Christ. What happens with new babies? They want to eat. As a new babe, freshly birthed in Christ, you will find yourself hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And so my plea to you this morning, friend, is simply this, to turn to Jesus and be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise in Scripture. The second group of people I want to speak to are the Christians, those of us who have already been rebirthed by Jesus Christ, but who, for whatever reason, find that right now in this season of life we don't have much of an appetite for the righteousness that Jesus is commending in Matthew 5.6. And I want to ask you to do some sober, serious examination of yourself. Ask yourself, do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I convicted by Matthew 5, 6. Has my hunger and thirst been directed actually toward righteousness or has it been directed in other areas? What to do? First of all, go to God and confess from your heart. Ask for His help to feel the hunger and thirst for righteousness that you lack. Ask for his help. And secondly, take pains to examine, and I hope you'll do this this week, to examine the shape of your whole life. Are there things in your life that would tend to squelch your appetite for righteousness that perhaps you need to rethink? Is there something or some things that are taking the edge off your appetite for spiritual things? Things that you can work to minimize or in some cases delete altogether. The Puritan Thomas Watson reminds us, he says, By feeding immoderately upon the sweet, luscious delights of the world, we lose our appetite to Christ and grace. He says, You never knew a man to overindulge himself upon the world and at the same time be sick of love to Christ. And then Watson says this. I underline this. He says, While Israel fed with delight upon garlic and onions, they never hungered after manna. While Israel fed with delight upon garlic and onions, there's a lot of garlic and onions in this world, While Israel fed with delight upon garlic and onions, they never hungered after manna. Friends, the righteousness of God is manna that is delightful and rich and glorious and wonderful, and God wants to fill us with it for our flourishing. He just wants us to bring an appetite. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who cares about our thriving and flourishing in this world. We thank you that you have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the King, Jesus, over heaven and earth who has all authority. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work this word in our hearts and minds and lives this week. Uh, Perhaps do what is uncomfortable in us to bring us to a place where we will hunger and thirst afresh after the righteousness that you provide. I pray these things in the mighty and the powerful saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now hear the Lord's benediction for you. May the one whose love has no limit, whose grace has no measure, whose power has no boundary known unto men, may he from his infinite riches in Jesus send you help from his sanctuary and grant you his support from that heavenly Zion. Amen.